When you reach for a novel, do you ever feel guilty for not picking up your Bible, a devotional, or missionary biography? Some question whether fiction itself is spiritually healthy. And even if novels are harmless entertainment, do we actually need them? Are they worth our time and attention, not to mention our money? Perhaps there are more important questions to ask, though. What if God made humans to get healthier from reading stories? What if we, in fact, desperately need fiction? We'll explore all this today. Welcome new to Fantastical Truth. This podcast from lorehaven.com helps you to find the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond, and we apply the wonders, delights, goodnesses, beauties, all the rest of those wonderful things to the real world that our creator and savior, Jesus Christ, has called us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett. I publish lorehaven.com, and of late, I'm also the co-author of a book called The Pop Culture Parent, Helping Kids Engage Their World for Christ. And I'm Zachary Russell, and this is episode 50, Do Christians Really Need Fiction? It's part one of our three-part series, Fiction's Chief End. And hey, Stephen, this is our 50th episode. This is really fun. I can't believe we've been doing it that long. That's halfway to 100. Yeah. Yes. If you've been with us for most of these episodes, thank you so much for joining us for 50 episodes. Now, we just want to ask you up front. Would you share this episode with someone, someone at your church, your family, a coworker, a friend? We think this is going to spark a lot of great discussion in the world of Christians reading. And we're going to make sort of a controversial point here through this episode, one of many, which is that you might need a novel more than another devotional. Okay. I was afraid you were going to say that you might need a novel rather than the Bible, in which case we would (laughs) rightfully get in trouble. However... (laughs) You're not reading the Bible all the time. The Bible is the foundational document for the Christian, inspired by God, inerrant in all of the best translations there, we would say. However, at some times, you might, you might actually need a novel and, and, and leave, leave the Bible there, pick up a novel, who knows, just as you might need to feed your neighbor rather than read the Bible. That's one of the ideas that we're going to talk about in this rather foundational, I would say a cornerstone episode that's a very much a part of the groundwork for why Lorehaven exists, so why we do what we do at the, at the website, lorehaven.com, uh, why we've gone monthly now uh, with that uh, digital magazine, as it were, at lorehaven.com with the news and the reviews and this podcast and the articles. We really look forward uh, to you joining us for this very pretty momentous exploration today. Yeah, so if you're just joining us for the first time, let me give you a quick overview of where we're going to go today, and it's, it's sort of going to cover the next three episodes. But today we're going to look at how fiction is God's idea, fiction is personally transformative, and how fiction creates stronger communities. So the big idea here is that God is a storyteller. His word to us begins with the phrase, in the beginning, and it ends with the happy imagery of a wedding feast. And we are also storytellers, so we attempt to discover and share truth through stories. Fiction really weaves together our social fabric. In short, stories change the world. They do change the world, and a biblical understanding of the purpose of stories is going to help us revolutionize why we enjoy them. So what we're doing in this episode is we are reaching out to anyone who has doubted whether fiction really has all that much advantage, especially over nonfiction or biography or devotionals or even the Bible itself. We hold the Bible in the highest regard. In fact, that's why we argue, I would say argue the way that we do, that fiction itself is not only something nice to have, a pretty cool hobby, but ultimately optional in the grand eternal scheme of things, but fiction is actually endorsed in scripture. God is using in the Bible imaginative appeals through story, through artwork, through imagery, not through fiction in terms of us understanding that all the narratives of the Bible, the history Genesis, all of that stuff are fiction. We don't say that, but there is fiction sprinkled throughout the Bible, not just in Jesus' parables, but you'll see it in the Acts of the Prophets. God is in the act of using the human imagination for his glory. And we say that we have a positive biblical case for enjoying fiction generally, Uh, not just writing fiction, or we're not even talking about fantasy yet, uh, but just fiction is not only okay, 
but in fact, a positive good in the life of the Christian. Yeah, we're, we're going to be making the case that you need fiction. Like you can't live without fiction. Need. Yes. So it's not just, it's not optional. So here we go. Uh, and let's cover a few things in our concession stand like we often do. So kind of just to cover up front what we're not saying, because <laughs> this is kind of how you have to do it. Uh, so of course you need to read your Bible. You know, I've, Stephen, I've always joked with people that when I get to heaven, I, I'm sure I'm going to meet some really awesome people like J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And man, I don't want to be standing there next to C.S. Lewis talking about Narnia and sort of nerding out with him about it. And then all of a sudden Habakkuk wanders over and goes, oh, hey, did you read my book too? And I'm like, whoops, I guess I forgot to do that. You know, so uh, now I have read Habakkuk, but my point is we need to be as familiar with the Bible as we are with any other book. So of course you should read your Bible and, you know, we're not going to address today in which order you should read your Bible versus a devotional or a novel or how much like time to give to one another. That's, that's not really what we're going to cover. And we definitely acknowledge in case you're wondering not all fiction is morally good or even morally neutral. You know, we still need discernment, whatever story it is that we're reading. Other elements we won't explore as much in this particular episode. Uh, we're not going to explore the topic of Christian-made fiction as opposed to fiction in general. In other episodes and in future episodes, we're going to extol the benefits of fiction that is uniquely made by Christians and even fiction that is made for Christians. There are themes and areas and creative energies that uniquely Christian-made fiction offers that general fiction simply cannot. Yes, much, uh, much general market fiction, uh, fiction that's not marketed to Christians or as Christian fiction or from Christian publishers or whatever, often it is more excellent than some of the stuff you used to find on the walls of a Christian bookstore. But uh, we're, we're going to bypass that topic for now and maybe circle back to that later. A second a concession here is that we're not speaking directly about those who have an active, what they think is a biblical conviction against fiction. I actually don't see a whole lot of those folks around, uh, particularly because scripture is so obvious in its support of fiction. I, I've heard of a few people who think that, for example, uh, Jesus would not tell a lie. You know, his, his parables were actual historical events uh, that went on out there somewhere uh, because Jesus would not tell a lie. We're not, we're not going to try to rebuke that view today. Fiction, we don't think fiction is a lie, uh, and we're, we don't think a whole lot of Christians actually think that, so we won't be speaking to that now. Yeah, I wasn't aware there was that view out there. That's interesting. Yeah, every once in a while you encounter that, but it's, it's not a strong view among Christians. It's, it's very niche. The final concession I have is that we know a lot of our listeners already agree, yes, fiction has benefits. Fiction is biblical. Uh, in this case, we're hoping to maybe you know, deconstruct some of the assumptions we have about why fiction has benefits and then rebuild a stronger and we hope more biblical foundation. Fiction, again, is not just something that would be nice to have or that is good to have because it helps us rest or distracts us from stress or because it gives us good emotions. Uh, fiction is actually something that we believe that we need to be better, more holy, more happy, Christ-exalting human beings. If you've listened to our last episode about how we need to terraform the church for a greater enjoyment of fiction together, that was the why, and this is going to be the, the how. So we really want this episode to equip you to sort of take these ideas into your church and your communities to help foster a greater love for fiction. Okay, so let's jump into our first section here, which is that fiction is God's idea. So I've got a lot of quotes to read throughout this episode. I'm going to read a few for each section here. So our first quote comes from Trevin Wax, who's part of the Gospel Coalition. He says, quote, fiction opens up worlds that abstract statements do not, which is why some of Jesus' best known statements came in connection with the fictional story or an actual event. Reading fiction can help a pastor grow in his ability to imagine the world he wants his listeners to inhabit, end quote. As we said earlier, God is a storyteller. He spoke and wrote true stories, but he also wrote and spoke fictional ones. So here's a couple examples. Proverbs 7 tells the story of the wayward woman and the foolish man. 2 Samuel 12 is the made-up story of the rich man who steals the ewe lamb from the poor man and gives it to a traveler. And Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. You know, these are all, and you can probably think of a lot more as I'm just listening at these three. The point is, 
fiction shows up in the Bible. It's God's idea to tell stories. And yes, he even wrote fantastical fiction. You may know the story of of Jotham's parable of the talking trees in Judges 9. And we're going to talk about that more in our next episode. Then there's also the visions, the dreams, the prophecies recorded in the Bible, you know, all those really crazy scenes. And although those are true things happening, they're also pretty fantastical. So again, we're going to talk more about fantastical fiction in our next episode. But Stephen, what do you think about this? Just, you know, what, what are some examples that come to mind for you of fiction in the Bible? Well, you covered the majority of those. Jesus' parables, as we've mentioned, definitely stand out. And for those who might suspect deep down that the best way to communicate truth to people is through uh, just teaching nonfiction or even some kind of political activism, we sometimes suspect that this is the quickest, most efficient, most practical way to persuade people of the truth. Jesus, however, spoke in parables often. In fact, uh, some portions of the Gospels indicate that in some contexts, Jesus limited himself exclusively to parables, hiding the meaning for reasons that he explains later to his disciples. At other times, he's speaking directly, but often Jesus wove in a simile and metaphor, uh, imaginative appeals in and among his nonfiction teaching. So we really do have Jesus as our best and highest example for fiction being included in the Bible. I can, however, think of a, a listener objection or you know, maybe some folks uh, in, in churches who might suggest, for example, well, just because it's described in the Bible doesn't mean that we are told to do that. You know, the Bible does present fiction, you know, just because God tells stories in the Bible, maybe that is his divine prerogative. You know, where in the Bible does it say that humans are supposed to do this? First, my response to that would be that it is never condemned for people to do that in the Bible. Jesus is not the only one who tells stories. Uh, that Judges 9 narrative about uh, Jotham telling the parable of the talking trees is presented entirely without comment. It's uh, similar to those uh, favorite verses of mine in, I believe, uh, Genesis 4 and 5, where it's talking about the way that humans spread over the earth and built empires of art and architecture and culture and agriculture. Those are presented without comment, but also in a very positive context, especially given the portrayals of sin and murder, you know, Cain killing Abel and these other examples of sin that are presented in Genesis. So on the way to talking about how the earth becomes full of sin, it's also describing these great accomplishments of human civilization. And it's a subtle hearkening back to what I believe is the biblical commandment, and I would say it's a commandment, in Genesis 1.28, which theologians have called the cultural mandate. Mandate is a commandment. It's a summons. It's almost like the, the commission that Jesus gives right before he ascends into heaven. The Great Commission, in fact, modifies the cultural mandate for Christians. The cultural mandate says, be fruitful and multiply, go out, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over all of God's creation. It is an implicit and then explicit command to make things based on what God has made. We're going to run references to the cultural mandate into the ground at Lorehaven because it is the <laughs> biblical purpose for creating things, which is not limited to, but certainly includes fiction. It would include, I believe, fantastical fiction as well. Uh, there's plenty to say about how sin tampers with that command, how apart from Christ's redemption, Sin will ruin the earth because it is ruining the stewards of the earth from the inside out. Those also are topics that we won't get into now. Suffice it to say, yes, we do still carry that need for fiction. And in many ways, because we have been corrupted by sin, how much more do we need truth even reflected to us in different ways through the advantages that only fiction offers? Well, and this makes a great point, Stephen, is that fiction is not only God's idea, it's God's command. You know, we are commanded to have fiction, to read fiction. You know, you might be wondering, listener, why, why in the world would we be com commanded to do that? It's because imagination is also God's idea. Imagination is a muscle that we have to use. And there's a great quote here by Douglas Jones who says, weak imaginations have always fallen before scripture's chief enemies, legalists, rationalists, and libertines. Orthodoxy demands imagination. And so we are just asking for serious spiritual problems if we deny the imaginative life to our children, end quote. 
So fiction is something God intended for humans to create and share with one another and consume. J.R.R. Tolkien talks about this in his essay on fairy stories, where he says that we are sub-creators with God. We create worlds and we tell stories because God has done the same. And you know, this idea of the cultural mandate, it really brings to light James 1.17, where it says, every good gift is from God. And Stephen, I also think of Acts 14.17, where it says, he has not left himself without witness. Everything that God tells us to create he is infused in that in some way, and, it, and in some way it, it leads back to him. So fiction is therefore not something random or accidental or oops, the universe figured out fiction. You know, it's not unnecessary. It is a core ingredient of the human experience. Basically, any argument uh, that you have for music can also be applied to fiction. And I often notice that in particularly at local church contexts, Everyone kind of understands that we're supposed to have music around here. You know, music is a commandment of God. He specifically said in the Bible, even more than you know, go out and make fiction, he said, go out and make music and sing and make melody to the Lord in your heart. And that, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that are being uh, created and uh, performed, celebrated among God's people. So that command is even more explicit. And yet it also creates so much conflict in uh, the Christian communities. And what style of music? What is the purpose of music? Is music attractional for the seeker or is it vertical, you know, directed only to God? Are we supposed to do everything we can to have most excellent music? Or can we just do what they used to do when I was a kid is you know, flip on the cassette uh, from the little sound booth in the back and then have somebody get up to do a special. And then if they're a little off key, well, bless their heart. Uh, we're just going to wince to ourselves and be polite and not say anything. We'll talk about the excellence that's required in the in the best fiction, you know, at, at some other time. But it is important to note that fiction is in the same category as music. Music comes from the imagination. Local churches know that music is required, even if we disagree why. I would say that the reason why is that music helps to appeal to our imaginations makes us think in different ways. It makes us see different pictures. Some of us, not me so much, but some of us, it, music makes us want to move. Fiction has the similar effect. And the purpose of all of this is not just to communicate truth, you know, not just to serve, you know, as the, as the candy coating around the broccoli spear that you're trying to get down your uh, stubborn child in order to try to smuggle in some nutrients. Fiction is a unique way to help us glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I think that really is the key to unlocking that project of terraforming the church is not just saying, you know, it'd be nice if we have some fiction around here. You know, it might help, uh, it might help bring in some of those teens who wouldn't otherwise come to youth group, or it might help keep people from backsliding. But those may be some secondary effects. But in this case, it, it, it almost really doesn't matter what the effect is on, on the marketing for the church the best effect of fiction is that it helps us to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's actually the chief end to which we allude in the title of this series, Fiction's Chief End. Our chief end is not to make disciples. It's not even to steward the earth or to make things or use our imaginations or communicate truth. The Westminster Confession says in the first point there, what is the chief end of man? That's the question. And then the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The confession itself goes in a different direction, but I would ask, okay, how do we do that? One of the ways that we do that is by what you said there, Zach, exercising the muscle. We get out there, we are active, not just communicating truth to one another as part of discipleship, training to be redeemed humans in God's world, uh, but we're also supposed to use our imaginations fiction, music, any of those gifts, you know, different personalities are going to gravitate towards different modes of those gifts, but it is something that we not just could really use, but that we actually do need. You mentioned a minute ago about how so often we look at art, music, fiction through the lens of like truth. Like, does this serve the cause of truth? And certainly art and fiction can reflect truths, but I think there's a better argument to make here, which is that just like truth is an irreducible value, so are beauty and goodness. Each of those doesn't have to serve the other one. Like beauty in itself is a good thing. And to enjoy the beauty that God's created or just to enjoy his beauty glorifies him in the same way that goodness 
shown through acts of mercy, for example, or acts of service, that is a good thing. That glorifies God. You don't have to always pull from one or the other or all three at the same time. And I think fiction, just like art, mostly reflects the kind of irreducible value of beauty, but it does bring in these other ones. And there's a quote here from Russell Moore, and we'll sort of end our first section here with this. And it's a little bit longer quote, where Russell Moore says, quote, I've found that most people who tell me that fiction is a waste of time are folks who seem to hold to a kind of sola cerebra vision of the Christian life that just doesn't square with the Bible. The Bible doesn't simply address man as a cognitive process, but as a complex image bearer who recognizes truth not only through categorizing syllogisms, but through imagination, beauty, wonder, awe. Good fiction isn't a waste of time for the same reason good music and good art aren't wastes of time. They are rooted in an endlessly creative God who has chosen to be imaged by human beings who create. Culture isn't irrelevant. It's part of what God commanded us to do in the beginning, and that he declares to be good, end quote. Amen. Amen. And we've actually used that quote, I think, at previous versions of, uh, of the website that's now lorehaven.com. I'm hoping to bring back the quote function in some future improvements to the site because it really does help, especially for those of us who are you know, a little bit more left-brained. You know, maybe we do have a kind of what he calls a sola cerebra vision. That is, we think in terms of math or you know, moving parts, engineering. You know, it, not so much we have a mind of metal and wheels like we are just completely non-creative because this too is a type of creativity after all. It's all the same thing. But beauty and goodness and truth are also in God all the same thing. Those are philosophical categories that can't ultimately be separated. Fiction shows truth in a way that, you know, straight up didactic teaching cannot capture. And because straight up didactic teaching is never devoid of imagination, uh, there's way too much overlap uh, to throw fiction out as a waste of time. Uh, I do wonder if maybe uh, Dr. Moore here has encountered uh, some of the folks in his circles who think that, oh, fiction is a waste of time. You know, I, I actually don't hear that <laughs> stated outright, you know, unless it's a fringe internet commentator or something. But that's more of a suspicion that we have haunting us. I, I like to say that it's a meme that we can catch, you know, like a COVID-19 uh, germ or something, uh, rather than a, a teaching that we've studied and really think about very seriously. It's just a suspicion that we have. And I think that systematically going through Material like this helps us to logically appreciate why we need fiction. You can show someone a fiction and say, here, this is why it argues for itself. But more likely, we benefit from following more of the Brian Gadawa approach that we talked about in one of our first episodes is understanding that because God is a whole God who is all of these things, so are our humans. Humans love all of these things all at once, and fiction communicates truth in ways that didactic teaching can't do. And didactic teaching will communicate truth and beauty and goodness as well. Uh, but these are two parts of the same system. Uh, they're, they're flesh and bone and brain and heart all at once, uh, rather than trying to split these apart and divide them. We need fiction. We need teaching. We need music. We need all of these things for our chief end of glorifying God. I think a good way of thinking of this is that fiction is part of a balanced diet of being a human. Because I've certainly felt that before, like, oh, maybe, maybe I shouldn't read this novel or this, this story. Like, maybe I should just read a devotional or something. I, I think that sneaks up on us sometimes. We don't always know where that comes from. But here's a practical way I'd like to encourage you, our listener, to sort of put this into action. A lot of times we ask one another, hey, what are you reading in the Bible? Or are you using a Bible reading plan or whatever? I want you to ask a friend, hey, what? fiction are you reading? You know, what novel are you reading? And then share about what you're reading. Again, not as a way to like pressure people or embarrass people or whatever, but just to make that part of normal conversation. We don't think about asking people, oh, what music do you like? Or what's on your Spotify playlist? And so I, I think this should just be a normal part of conversation. What are you reading? Okay, well, let's go to our second big idea here, which is that fiction is personally transformative. I've got a quote here from author Alyssa Hope Wagner, who says, quote, like a magic portal, a story sweeps us into another life and world and allows us to imagine and feel circumstances outside of ourselves. 
We walk in another's shoes and see life from a different vantage point. And before we know it, a truth has been planted so deep within our souls that we can't shake it. We have been both entertained and informed and maybe even a little changed, end quote. There's this uh, summary of this idea, Stephen, I've heard before, which is that fiction is the lie that tells the truth. Let's kind of break down this quote and, and talk about it a little bit more. I really love how Alyssa put this. Fiction awakens the moral imagination. That's another big thing that Dr. Moore has talked about. The prophet Nathan didn't just preach a sermon to King David when he wanted to confront him about his sin. He gave him an emotional experience through a story. Jesus didn't scold the Pharisees for being grumps at other people being saved. I mean, he did at times. He called them a brood of vipers, which again is imaginative. But he showed them a character who portrayed them exactly. And he didn't simply proclaim that God's grace was scandalous. He gave us stories like the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And that really makes you feel it like, whoa, this this grace thing works entirely different than how I thought it would work. Stories like this are so powerful because they go straight to the heart and they, they can't easily be dismissed or forgotten, like Alyssa's saying. Stephen, just on the personal side, so I was saved at age 16 at Young Life Camp where they really just systematically, just perfectly laid out the gospel. Went through Romans, talked about, you know, kind of the four spiritual laws kind of approach, the the bridge analogy, whatever you want to call it, uh, just very clearly explaining how Jesus paid for my sins and I I can be saved through him. And so that, that was when I prayed to receive Christ. But it was a year later when I was just sitting alone in my bedroom, just reading the Bible, and I came across the parable of the unmerciful servant. And again, I, I was new Christian, never heard this parable before. And oh my gosh, that story just completely blew me away. I realized I was no better than the guy in that story, than the bad guy in the story, because of a lot of unforgiveness I'd been holding on to. It's like I got saved again, even though I know that's not what happened, but it's like uh, what I think what happened is I truly felt what grace was. Like I truly experienced it on a, like a deep emotional level. I mean, I still think about that moment like 23 years later, like God's grace became so real to me through that story. I've had several experiences that are unique to fiction, to fantastic stories, whether or not they're in the fantasy or science fiction genres proper. Last night, uh, my wife and I were watching, uh, I think it's a PBS series, uh, the um, an adaptation of the James Harriet uh, historical veterinary in the country uh, medicine uh, drama, All Creatures Great and Small. And I'm just transported away to this other time and place. And the story is about empathy. It's about you know in- empathizing with these human characters. Uh, it's about empathizing with the animals uh, that this um, country uh, veterinarian is is caring for. And then you know, some of his uh, difficulties, uh, challenges, uh, trying to deal uh, with people who may not understand uh, veterinary medicine, who still have a lot of superstitions and traditions about how you care for animals. Like all of that helps me. Any kind of story like that helps helps me. Helps anyone who's engaged with it to become a better person. And that's just not the moralistic sense. By becoming a better person, we mean that stories can be part of what the Holy Spirit uses to help us become more like Jesus. It is part of that transformation. I love you use the word there. It is transformative. Uh, you're not simply sitting there listening to you know, someone talk about you know, abstract ways to become like Jesus or becoming you know, abstract virtues like patience or kindness or goodness. You can hear those words, but what is it that loads those definitions into your head? You can use more words to describe the words but eventually you're going to run out of words and you're going to have to point to an image or a story or an anecdote or a simile or something and say, here, it's like that. That is, after all, how little children learn words in the first place. You point to a ball, you say ball. You point to a dog, you say dog. The word gets associated with the images and then eventually we're able to learn you know, abstracts, but even those ultimately are based on the images and the images must form a story. Uh, you can have the random collection of them in your brain, but it is the story that gives them form. This is actually a, an argument from creation. You know, God uses words to make actual things. And while fiction describes people in places and events that did not exist, we can imagine that they do. And I think that relates to 
the the idea of sub-creation and not just creation, but the idea of incarnation. When you enter a new world, get caught up in events and all of that, uh, you are practicing to be like Jesus. You are entering a world. You are empathizing with the people. You are interacting with them in your imagined space, just like Jesus interacted with uh, with people in real time and space. So it really is about being influenced by the Holy Spirit and also being encouraged to be more like Christ, be more transformed. Just taking a step back for a moment, isn't that amazing to think that God created us in everything we know with words, you know, that, that everything goes back to words? And that explains why I could be sitting there on the ground reading a book, reading just words on a page, and I have this deep, a transformative experience, you know, because that is the power and the purpose of language of words. And, and like you said, it's, it's not just random words thrown together, but it's an ordered story. You know, there is a structure to it and that has power. So kind of the next way that we're going to look at how fiction is transformative is the ways that it's scientifically beneficial. So here's a quote from a book uh, called The Emotional Craft of Fiction. Why do people get caught up in events that they know cannot be real? What causes people to feel strongly about fictional characters, argue with them, and even reimagine their outcomes? Yes, scientists really study this stuff. A story causes what psychologists call cognitive evaluation in readers. Making us think while we read not only makes a story intriguing, but medically speaking, it's necessary for our well-being and mental health. Put simply, to be healthy, we have to experience wonder. It's one of the reasons that reading stories feels necessary. It actually is, end quote. So I found this study from the University of Sussex, and they found that reading greatly reduces stress levels in adults by more than 60%. They found that reading was actually better than listening to music or drinking tea or coffee, or even taking a walk. And it only took six minutes for our participants' stress levels to be reduced through reading. And um, I think about how reading helps us can help us sleep. Well, <laughs> Naomi may disagree with this. Now, Naomi, when she reads a book at night, it kind of keeps her awake. But for me, I, I very easily fall asleep to reading. And uh, there's this author, K.M. Wyland, had a recent Facebook post where she said, it's a lot easier to start the day when I know it will end in a book. And I, I read this the other day and I thought, man, I, I can get through a lot of things in a day if I'm like, hey, at the end of this day, I get to go back to an awesome book that I was reading. And also sort of built into this is a bit of a challenge, like a little bit of a poke at me. I'll, I'll just admit that, yeah, that's probably a better thing to end my day with than YouTube or Facebook or just more news and politics. But the whole focus of these studies and these points is that reading increases our brain's functionality. You know, we, we talk about how it increases creativity and empathy. Dr. Jonathan Haidt demonstrated that scientifically, that fiction can cause moral, what he, what he calls moral elevation. We make better choices because noble characters inspire us to. And this is sort of going back to your point a minute ago, Stephen, that when you see these moral decisions play out in a story, that affects kind of your own moral reasoning. I think even more, and this is possibly a, a, a topic to focus on in a future episode, more and more I am discovering the applications of appreciating fiction, and in particular fiction that involves a lot of conflict, you know, family conflict or fantastical conflict. Stories about that, I think, may be crucial to help people who are seeking to heal from trauma, from relational trauma, or even just the, the effects of doom scrolling or too much conflict going on in our political narratives. You know, more and more when I'm talking with people about, you know, or, or listening more often uh, about the issues that they have that involve a lot of conflict, I will say, you know, in addition to anything else that I hope they would find helpful in that conversation, hey, have you tried this story? You know, I'm not saying it's going to fix your problem, but now, after all, one of the best things you can do for someone when they're describing their problems and not in a dysfunctional way, if they're describing them in a way that means they want to heal from them or find a solution eventually, one of the best things you can do is just listen. And in that sense, a story can listen. You, if you're watching, uh, even watching a movie, switching from reading momentarily, if you're watching a movie about 
you know, someone who's trying to do the right thing and not to say, for example, pure hypothetical, someone who's trying not to turn to the dark side, you know, and who would like to be part of his father's redemption story because his father is a villain. That can be very therapeutic, I think, you know, just trying to empathize with this hero's journey. If you're reading a book that's uh, similar and in fact can be even more effective uh, based on your personality. That's a very secular argument, but I think in terms of the, the biblical doctrine that Christians are called to be ministers of reconciliation, I think that fiction, by building that empathy, helps us to see others' point of view and also helps us to follow along and internalize those images of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation, or even just the plain and terrible truth that sometimes the villain can't be redeemed and has got to suffer the vengeance of the story in some way. Those methods of building empathy are unique to fiction. I think that that is why also all of the books that I read, even the kind of the Christian counseling books about peacemaking and forgiveness and reconciliation and dealing with conflict, all of them are very story heavy. You know, why, whether the counselor is sharing a you know, a fictionalized version of uh, anecdotes of people that he's uh, dealt with or whether they're making up characters. You know, they're always trying to say, OK, what if you do this, this and this? And you know, what, what about you know, this couple who's having this conflict? There are constantly appeal to fiction to try to help people build those empathy muscles and, uh, and not skip empathy day uh, in their emotional workout, which is crucial to our development as transformed Christ-like people. I like that empathy day. Well, there's this quote I'm going to read from uh, Keith Oatley. He's a PhD and professor emeritus in the Department of Applied Psychology and Human Development at the University of Toronto. And he has this very succinct quote here, which is, quote, fiction is the mind's flight simulator, end quote. So this brings up the idea of sort of escaping into this, you know, imagined world. That's obviously what fiction is. And, and that that's a good thing. Now, side note, I've seen... Uh, some videos recently of the new Microsoft flight simulator. I I've never been a plane nerd or whatever, but oh my goodness, Steven, like you've really got to check this out. I know you have a, a PC. I I have a Mac. This makes me want to buy a PC, like how realistic that is and just how you can, you can like go see anywhere in the world just by flying there virtually, which for COVID is a pretty great thing, but just for any other time, like how else would you do that unless you're a pilot? But this whole idea of fiction being a means of escape, is that, a, is that a valid thing? Is that a good thing? I submit that it is. And here's why. Everyone, I don't care who you are, everyone tries to escape their pain or the stress of the world. And books are one of the healthiest ways to do that, right? You think about all the different ways people try to get away from their pain. A book is a very healthy way of doing that. And back to uh, J.R.R. Tolkien in his essay on fairy stories, he says that we shouldn't confuse the escape of a prisoner with the flight of a deserter. If our loyalty is to this world, then escape is desertion. But if our loyalty is to another world, then escape is right. So fiction is something that it gets us out of our own head and it sort of gets us into deeper and clear thinking and truths. And that's what allows us to have this fuller experience of humanity. When we access our imagination, that is crucial. And I like how you said, it's, it's just the same way as don't skip leg day, don't skip empathy day, don't skip imagination day. Uh, notwithstanding Tolkien's famous example in contrasting you know, the two kinds of escape, uh, I, I prefer, I mean, I will use that for sure. And I appreciate that. But I also just trying to think of in terms of especially communicating this truth biblically to people. I would think in terms of Sabbath versus work, God did command Sabbath rest, and that assumes many things about the types of activities you're going to do on the Sabbath. If you read some uh, you know, frontier, a uh, semi-autobiographical fiction, you know, set in the late 19th century in the United States, like the Laura Ingalls Wilder books, Sabbath is miserable. You're sitting around studying your catechism, no fun, no play, nothing like that. That is worlds away from the Sabbath rest motif in the Old Testament. You're not getting drunk and carousing. Of course not. That's idolatry. But Sabbath is a joyous occasion. You get to sing to the Lord. You get to take a break from work. You know, you've made all the food the day before so that you can coast through the Sabbath day. You know, there's even penalties if you try to work in the, in the Old Testament. It's good 
to have Sabbath rest. It's good to follow that example that God himself made on the seventh day. God rested, it says. And story making or rather story enjoyment can be part of that Sabbath rest. To suppose that fiction is an escape, like escape from what? Escape from your work? Well, God has commanded a, quote, escape, end quote. And it's not called escape. It's called Sabbath rest. It's called recreation. That's a very biblical concept of recreating, you know, the restoration, taking a break and imitating the rest that is in God. Christ does call us to great work, uh, both in the cultural mandate to steward the earth and in the Great Commission to go out and make disciples. That's hard work. But rest is built into that. That command has not been rescinded. And in fact, many terrible things happen uh, when we turn into even spiritual workaholics. You know, ignoring your family to do ministry is a rather infamous crime among Christians. Uh, I think the same thing applies if you were to ignore fiction because it's escapist uh, in order to do the very important work of uh, nonfiction and only, you know, propositional teaching and communicating truth through straight up nonfiction ideas. Fiction is the biblical escape to Sabbath rest and recreation. And what do you know? You actually get a little work done even if you don't know it, you know, there's stuff that can be done when you're resting that you cannot do uh, during that uh, normal Monday through Saturday work schedule. Amen to all that. And now let's look at our third big idea, which is that fiction creates stronger communities. And this really starts with the one-on-one relationship that you have to start a community with. So I'm going to go to a, a Russell Moore quote, continuation of things that he'd said, where he says, quote, Fiction, along with songwriting and personal counseling, are the most constant ways that God teaches me empathy. Almost everyone is the hero in his or her own personal narrative. Fiction helps people honestly present those internal stories that people tell themselves, things they won't disclose in, say, a debate or a nonfiction monograph arguing for their way of life. End quote. So, my thought here is how. Fiction helps us understand people who are very different than us, and even more so than watching a movie, where in a movie we only see external actions, but a book takes us inside someone's mind. And in fact, we, we become that person in our imagination. We live their life for a short time. And man, Stephen, you know, we've talked about how so often the, the conflict we have with other people, whether it's personal conflict or kind of group conflict or national conflict. I, I think what it comes from is people imagining the wrong things or, or perhaps just the absolute worst things about other people. And this is where I think fiction has great power to reverse that kind of misunderstanding or just that mis, uh, misapplying of motives. Exactly. Now, in the previous section, we talked about how you know, fiction is used by the Holy Spirit to change us as individuals. Uh, from there, of course, we move to this other biblical concept that individuals do not stay alone. God said in Genesis 2, it's not good for man to be alone. And then what do you know? You've got the means for creating all these other humans too. Imagination is not just a solo act. It is a, the enjoyment of fiction is something that people share together. And I like this emphasis again on empathy among different peoples because imagination is something that we all have. And if we do not train to use it, we do not have the proper categories for it, including fiction, then we are going to use it in disordered ways. I think it, it's not just lack of empathy, but I think it's, it's just that disordered imagination uh, that is leading people, including many professing Christians, in all kinds of directions. We confuse fiction for reality. Uh, we think that this conspiracy theory or, or this nonsense over here, well, that's real. It's real. We haven't learned to discern the speculative, the imaginative from that which is real. And some of us end up falling for false reports or slanders you know, or just plain naivete about how the world works. Uh, you take all that and you, you put it into one thing called fiction. Not, it's not a cure-all. And we're not trying to sell a, a silver bullet here, but it is, uh, it is something that leads uh, to the greater chance that you're going to resist these kinds of disordered imaginations. Yeah. So now moving beyond the interpersonal level, and we think about a community level or society level, when, when uh, a certain work of fiction becomes sort of a shared story, a shared dream, uh, you know, becomes this myth almost that, that people enjoy together. 
there's a really good analysis of how myth worked in the life of C.S. Lewis, both personally and both in his group of friends that he was involved with. So there's this C.S. Lewis scholar named Dr. Art Lindsley who did an analysis of this. So I'm going to read something he said and then something Lewis said himself. So Dr. Lindsley says, quote, From an early age, C.S. Lewis had a fascination with mythology. One of Lewis's earliest objections to the Christian faith was its comparison with paganism. When Lewis, years later, raised this issue with Tolkien and Dyson, it led to a crucial all-night conversation. They argued that these pagan religions did contain truths and arose out of the structure of reality created by God. These pagan myths were echoes of reality and cosmic pointers to the true myth, the myth become fact in Christ. The gospel account of Christ is the story that fulfills these previous stories. The one difference being that the gospel narrative is historical, a true fact, end quote. And here's what C.S. Lewis himself said, quote, My own eyes are not enough for me. I will see through those of others. Reality, even seen through the eyes of many, is not enough. I will see what others have invented. Literary experience heals the wound without undermining the privilege of individuality. In reading great literature, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself, end quote. The one thing I think about, Stephen, is the myths and the legends and the stories that, that sort of permeate our culture and, and become part of our language, you know, it, it becomes a shorthand for complex topics, for feelings, for experiences. And, and that's how we sort of build culture is, is it's part, it becomes part of our language. One of my favorite Star Trek Next Generation episodes ever was Darmok and Jalad. You, you know where I'm going with this, right? Oh yeah. Episode called Darmok. I forget which season it is, but it's one of the, one of the latter seasons where the storytelling was just at its absolute peak. Yeah. So if you our listener have not seen that episode, I really got to encourage you to go see it. And if you're not familiar, in this episode, Picard is sent to be an ambassador between these two opposing groups of, of aliens. And when he tries to talk to them, all they do is reference these stories, these, these myths that they've always had. And they just have no, like their universal translator doesn't work because they don't know what these stories are about. Eventually what happens is Picard teaches one of these aliens some of his own myths and stories, and then they begin to communicate on that level. So it, it's a really wonderful episode. It makes me think so much. So earlier we talked about the need for discernment in consuming media. The ideal thing, I think, would be to enjoy fiction with other believers because iron sharpens iron. You know, God intended certain ideal settings and conditions for certain pleasures, certain gifts that he gives us. Okay, I'm going to go here a little bit, but wine, for example, is shown as a positive thing in certain settings, like a wedding banquet. It's Jesus' first miracle. But as we all know, uh, a solitary addiction to wine can destroy you. And I, I think the same is true for, yes, for fiction, for, for movies, for video games, any, any kind of story. If you get addicted to that and you're just consumed by it with all of your time, well, sure, that can take away everything else in your life. But I think the solution to that is not to get rid of fiction. I think it's to enjoy it with other people. We live in such a hyper-individualized society, especially now with pandemic and everything. And I think there's some degree of that that's unbiblical. I, I love individualism. I love living in an individualistic society. But as Christians, we are part of a body. So what I would encourage you to do, our listener, is find a way to enjoy a novel Christianly by inviting some other believers to read it with you. So one example of where I'm going to do this this year is I'm going to read Dune for the first time. When, when I saw the trailer for Dune, I was like, oh my gosh, this looks amazing. I've never read the book. Yeah, we are outside this fandom. I haven't read it either. Uh, don't, don't, don't cancel me at, at Duners or, or whatever your fandom term is. Uh, that that is something that I'm hoping to do with you as well, Zach. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, this book has been in the the popular consensus since I was, I don't know, in middle school or or earlier. I, I've heard people talk about this book forever, and I'm like, you know, I really want to read that, but I think it'd be a lot more fun to read it with others. So we're we're going to do that this year. Yeah, I look forward to that, and. I appreciate your emphasis there on the individuality uh, being 
not not um, not incorrect. I mean, there are some people who, you know, whether politically or culturally, or they've seen, you know, the the idolatry of the individual uh, will err on the side of the collective and suppressing the individuality. But you cannot get to, you know, groups of people or a community without honoring the enjoyments of the individual. And that's why I think that ultimately fandom, uh, as we understand it now, you know, crossing geographic areas over the internet, fandom is ultimately a very good thing. You've got fans of particular kinds of stories, sometimes very niche stories, getting together to enjoy these stories with another, to speculate on where they could be going, uh, to you know, try to ask questions of the people who've made them over the social medias. Just this past uh, week, actually, uh, they revealed uh, the release date for Zack Snyder's Justice League, the famous uh-huh. and lost, uh, oft-rumored, but actually real Snyder cut of the superhero team-up film uh, that was tortured, mutilated, a ruined form of life in the theatrical edition. Well, we're getting the real one on TV on the HBO Max streaming service on March 18th. I was waiting for that date announcement. The rumor was it was going to be March 18th. And as soon as I got it, I reached out to friends and said, hey, do you want to get together for this? You know, at, at my house, you know, I've, I've got the room. I think we can do it. It looks like it's going to be just streaming media uh, rather than going to theaters. Otherwise, I'd love to see it in theaters. This is an area where we can do that with certain precautions, even during the pandemic. Now, that is uh, turning that individual interest into a group interest. And in so doing, uh, we're kind of imitating the model of Christianity itself. Jesus changes the individual. It is an individual confession of faith, but then immediately says, there, go join a group now, train with them in discipleship. This is going to be called a local church, itself a smaller piece of a larger whole, the capital C church worldwide. Fiction and the fandom of fiction helps us to imitate that. And then, of course, if we're thinking of fiction as a means by which the Holy Spirit changes us to be like Jesus, then a, a a book club or a reading group or even just talking about the fiction you're enjoying with your friends uh, is not an imitation of that process, but is actually part of that sanctification process. Well, the next way we're going to look at how fiction transforms society and how it strengthens community is how it goes hand in hand with the Great Commission. So here's a quote from Colin Harbinson, who says, quote, The biblical pattern in expressing God's love and redemptive purposes was approximately 75% story, 15% poetry, and 10% instructional and didactic in nature. 90% appealed to the imagination. At a time when our world has become more visually and image-driven, the church has reversed this biblical pattern. Today, only 10% of the way we express the transforming narrative of the gospel is creative and imaginative. If the church is to fulfill the purposes of God for this generation, there must be a recovery of the imagination, both in the church and the culture, end quote. So I love this idea that fiction is part of evangelism. It's part of discipleship. It's not separate. It goes together. We, we talked about how novels are a great way to build bridges with others, and they're a great way to build bridges with your neighbors. You know, people that you, you don't really know how to talk to, you can, again, start a book club or just talk about a book that just came out recently. Hey, why don't we read that book and talk about it? It's not that hard. It, it, it's a great kind of common ground, like a third place to go. Excellent Christian stories in particular employ what what I call or what Mike Duran calls implicit apologetics. This is the idea that novels can have a foundational idea that paves the way for like a clear preaching of the gospel. And so here's a quote from Mike. He says, in the same way that Lewis moved incrementally from atheism to theism, people usually move from implicit to explicit Christian beliefs, end quote. That's exactly correct. What you are imagining might be true. All of a sudden, you might wake up and realize, wait a minute, I'm not sure if it's just imagination now. I think that maybe it may actually be true. That's a, that's a thought echoed by uh, the scholar Holly Ordway, who wrote a book called Apologetics in the Christian Imagination. Uh, a lot of that book, I felt, and really would, would be of special interest to those who already believe this, but need other ways to articulate it to themselves, and, and then may be able to, in turn, translate these ideas to others. 
But in her case, you know, she became a convert from atheism to Christianity and Catholicism in her particular case. But her worldview in this book is still uh, largely biblical. And she said that by the time she got a hold of biblical truth, biblical teaching later in life, she had already grown up forming these categories in her imagination thanks to fiction, thanks to fantasy in general, and in particular, the works of Lewis and Tolkien. So she herself then grew up and was able to not only follow in their footsteps in terms of her you know, academic career, but go where they went. You know, she, she had those pictures in her mind. She was, uh, one way or another, thinking implicitly, according to some Christian ideas there. And then uh, thanks to, I believe, that the movement of the Holy Spirit was able to turn that into active faith. Uh, which is kind of counterintuitive, I think, you know, at least uh, the way that I tend to think is a little, little bit more logical if I'm not careful or what I think is logical is, oh, that you have to do a complete start to finish apologetics presentation, however long it takes uh, for someone to understand the gospel. Because of our postmodern age, when few people even believe in God or even have the attention span to devote to reading words or understanding propositional ideas, you know, you've got your work cut out for you. You're going to have to start way back at the beginning and talk about, okay, there's a thing called God. Say it with me, God. God is eternal. Here's what that looks like. You know, go through the creation and why God has moral authority and is omni-everything and all of that. I think in some cases, particularly academic contexts, you have to start there, but you also might start at the top and not the bottom. And like, okay, this is what the world could look like if you believed not just in God, but in Christ, in the gospel, in this vision of beauty, in this expectation of redemption for the world. If you start imagining those things, and then the Holy Spirit, I think, can sneak in those imaginative categories and then go straight to the heart where we actually believe things. And then the person realizes to their surprise, wait a minute, like, when did I start believing this was true? I think a lot of people can say, that's when they felt that their conversion almost had already begun in the past. And it wasn't that they had a specific moment where they moved from being an atheist to being a Christian. Uh, like Lewis's famed conversion, it just seemed to happen so slowly and gradually. And yet they also remember like these breaking points where they went from one to the other and decided to make it official. I think we get those official points of conversion. Uh, but often in people's stories, they're a lot messier and they include a lot more imagination uh, than, than we might like to suppose. Well, and you bring up a good point about we, we do come into the faith through logic. I mean, that is definitely a part of it. I think it just works in different orders or to different degrees with people. But in, in every case, you know, our emotions are a part of that process that it might be front loaded, it might be back loaded. But, you know, our intuition and like you said, our expectations those kind of things are where fiction is strongest. That's what fiction really speaks to. To whatever degree that is part of someone's conversion experience, I think it's, I think it's a part of everyone's story of, of coming to Christ. The stories that we read and that we tell and that we share can be a part of that process. Well, notice too that similar in the Godawa episode, we, we are using logic and rationality to contend for the need for imagination in general and fiction in particular. Uh, your quote up there, Zach, is that 90% of the scripture is appealing to the imagination. Now, I'm not sure how you would classify that, but the very idea that that is something that could be quantified, like I think that helps for people who, because of their personality or experience, you know, like to think in terms of those percentages. Like I, I may not like a painting as much as a spreadsheet with all the numbers and their neat little rows and columns. Like, but that also is part of God's creation. That is order. You know, that's giving form to this data. You know, that's, it's just telling a story in another kind of way. And we see that we as humans have need for both. We have need for the proverbial left brain and the right brain. Uh, we are all one person. You know, we, we enjoy imagination and we enjoy truth. Uh, just as God is all one whole, uh, we cannot split one from the other. Well, to you, our listener, we hope that this has been a lot of helpful information and it's given form to some of the thoughts and feelings you've had about fiction and its value. We hope that this will help accomplish the terraforming mission that we talked about in our last episode of spreading the joy of stories and excellent Christian fiction in particular within the church. 
And speaking of that, let's let's hear from our fantastic fans now. We got a note from Elizabeth who wrote us after our last episode, 49, about terraforming the church. And she says, quote, I'd love to be part of a book club simply because it opens up more of the book for me. It can make it exciting and interesting, like discussing a movie or TV series I've just watched. It can bring about thoughts and perspectives I hadn't considered. Also, I'd prefer book clubs with more sci-fi and monsters. But would being part of a fantasy book club help develop a love for fantasy that I don't entirely have, like aside from Lord of the Rings and Narnia? It would be interesting to find out, end quote. Elizabeth, thanks for writing. And I love that adventurous spirit of like, well, you know, I'm not entirely opposed to fantasy, but it's not my first thing. But maybe if I can enjoy it with others, I, I would enjoy it more. And Stephen, in her letter she wrote to us, she did share some unfortunate uh, experiences she had with book clubs that, and discussions that kind of went sideways. But I, I love that she wants to try this again and go for it in another way. You know, the fact that she would bring all this stuff, that, that really demonstrates to me what we're saying is that we are meant to enjoy stories together in community. Like that's just part of it. Because you know, not only is fiction God's idea, but community is God's idea. The church is his idea. So of course, all these things go together. Amen. I would like eventually for it to be assumed that if you are a church, you have a book club. I mean, it used to be assumed that if you are a church, you have a church library. And usually, you know, one volunteer, it's picking up the books or taking care of the library. And not every church has the, uh, you know, the emphasis or even the space to do something like that. But it would be cool even to have just like a lending library, even if it's something that's organized online. I would love to do something like that. Of course, you know, it's a little bit difficult right now, but hey, maybe now is the time to kind of reboot and think, okay, now that we got a bit of a lull in the whole physical events department, what could we do more effectively when we get back together? I've had some great book club experiences. I've shared about those in previous uh, episodes of the podcast and in articles at Lorehaven. Uh, that's something that I really would like to do. It just, it takes a lot of time to put that together. Zach, I think you mentioned before that, you know, a virtual equivalent may help, but I think one of the most um, foundational <laughs> blocks to having a successful book club, uh, you actually alluded to that earlier, Zach, too, is that temptation to go on social media or just to watch videos. I think we underestimate the effect uh, that having always on, always available music and TV in our pockets have had on our attention span and our reading comprehension. It's okay, everybody. We, we've all struggled with that. I've also struggled with that, and I'm, I'm making strides but maybe it just helps to recognize that it is going to take effort to hang on to that attention span. We're not naturally in spaces where there isn't any TV available or you can't uh, play the radio or you know stick in a cassette or a CD like you used to be able to do. You you can you've got a tiny little device on your ear and a device in your pocket that can play those things and if you've you know standing in line to get in somewhere, you know, you can be watching you know, a 10-minute video rather than reading something. It's going to take some discipline, but I think because we can demonstrate that we need fiction, and in particular, we need to read fiction, not just watch it uh, or or listen to it. I'll think, although I think listening is you know can be more effective than watching. But if you can read fiction, hopefully this isn't just a luxury, a distant enjoyment of the past uh, that we really wish we could do, but we just don't have time because there's so much TV to watch. Uh, this is something that will take work in order for us to enjoy this particular form of rest. Yeah, it's not like we check in with each other and say, hey, did you did you watch enough TV this week? You know, did you doom scroll enough this week? No, we, we never say that in like accountability kind of questions or groups or whatever. Uh, I mean, we do ask about things like, hey, are you reading the Bible? And And I like your thought, Stephen, that we should just expect a book club to exist in a church in the same way we expect a Bible study to exist. And I think we should expect that of one another. Like, hey, you know, are you reading something this week beyond social media and whatever, like beyond the news, uh, the newspaper or whatever, if you still get newspapers, are you reading a story? Are you reading a novel? I just, I love that idea of just expecting that from ourselves and from one another and expecting there to be a place for some kind of group discussion or enjoyment of good stories. I, I totally get what you're saying too, Stephen. I, I I completely struggle with this myself because <laughs> the entire internet is just like one tap away at all times. And I'm I'm just an information junkie. I just love lots of information and, and reading lots of things. And so I literally have to put my phone and, and whatever else, leave it on my desk 
and sit in an entirely other room where all I have is my Kindle or my like physical book. I can't have that stuff within reach if I'm actually going to read for a while. And same way, like when I go to bed, I just, I try to keep those things in another room or sometimes I just go outside and read, uh, sit on a bench or something. Well, it's even more difficult if you're using your phone as a reading device, you know, I mean, we may have <laughs> right. a Kindle app on our phone and, you know, but, but then, you know, all you have to do is just tab over and you see what's going on on this, uh, on this social feed or see the new video just dropped from the people you subscribe from. I, mean, I actually find it more difficult sometimes to read on the phone just because of that factor. Otherwise I, I enjoy eBooks and physical books equally, but each one has its advantages. I think it just, it helps me going through all this, what we've talked about today. It, I think it helps me make that more important in my mind that this isn't just a nice to have thing. It's like actually crucial for me to be reading a novel. And I think that helps me think of more, like, I think that helps me be more intentional about this and try to find what, not, again, not to get legalistic or weird or anything, but just, it helps me to know that, you know, that there's actually something at stake here. If I don't do this, like my imagination could get weak or polluted. Like, uh, like that quote at the beginning where we said, a disordered imagination can lead to all these other heresies even like it's, it's just really interesting to think about that. So to you, our listener, we'd, we'd love to know how you prioritize reading. You know, how do you prioritize either personal or group enjoyment of a novel? So write to us at podcast at lorehaven.com. We'd love to hear your experience, your ideas with this and anything else you've thought about with this episode. And again, we would really love for you to share this with a friend at church, your family, who you think would enjoy this and would would, uh, would like to think about these things a little more deeply. This, this is going to be one of our kind of major episodes going to the future, so uh, so please share this. Next on Fantastical Truth, we have explored the general concept of fiction. We've argued from the Bible, I believe, that people not only could use some fiction around here but actually need fiction. So how do we, as Lorehaven, take the next logical step and bring it from general fiction to fantastical stories specifically, and even the genre that we would call fantasy? Okay, one would say, so maybe we need some fiction. Let's keep that focused to realistic stories, contemporary stories, dramatizations of missionaries, perhaps, or even just contemporary drama. Maybe some history in there is allowed if you're good maybe some mystery, maybe some suspense, but why fantasy? What is fantasy's chief end? That's what we will explore in particular on that next Fantastical Truth episode, part of this Fiction's Chief End series. Meanwhile, whether you are enjoying fiction or nonfiction, we hope and pray that you will see both as means of growing to be like Jesus, not just an optional dessert that you really could do without if you had to, Fiction is, in fact, the meat and potatoes. It is a central nutrient in our journey to become like Jesus as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth.